welcome to the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Blyall. Our guest today is Gilad Rosner. He is a privacy and information policy researcher and the founder of the Internet of Things Privacy Forum, an organization which brings together leaders from industry, academia, and government to discuss the privacy challenges of the IoT. He is also the author of the recently published O'Reilly Free Report, Privacy and the Internet of Things. We'll talk to Galad about the major privacy risks that are inherent with connected devices and what both businesses and governments can do to reduce privacy risks. Enjoy the show. Gilad, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So ever since this concept of the Internet of Things began being discussed a number of years back, privacy has always been cited as an issue of concern. At your organization, the Internet of Things Privacy Forum, what would you say is the latest or the number one issue related to privacy that's being discussed right now? Uh, That's a really good question. Um, I think the number one answer uh, here is the uh, degree of monitoring, the amount of collection, and then related to that um, is how many different stakeholders get to take a look at that information uh, or to listen to it or to analyze it. Um, So right now we have uh, with the web, uh, the issue of your information being shared with third parties uh, hither and yon. Now, of course, yes, they ask you up front uh, whether or not you consent to use the service and uh, and have it shared with all these different people. But that consent uh, in the privacy community isn't necessarily seen as very meaningful because it's it covers as much as possible. It's take it or leave it. Um, and uh, the, the privacy policies are written in, in uh, large part to be very, very broad. Um, so, you know, it is likely that that model, the take it or leave it approach, is going to be imported into the Internet of Things, in which case uh, these different devices, as they collect information about you, uh, that information will be shared very widely. But the difference between uh, what's come before and where we are now is the degree of intimate information and the fact that these devices are penetrating into intimate spaces and being able to uh, hear things and see things as opposed to just uh, monitor your activity on the web. So I believe that the answer is uh, the, the the breadth of collection and the breadth of sharing. Let's talk about a couple of examples. Uh, what new kind of privacy risks do I have to worry about when I buy a new car now, as opposed to, say, 10 years ago? Cars uh, are a good example of the sort of evolutionary nature of the Internet of Things. Because if you go back to the very late 70s and early 80s, you had um, software in the car uh, and the car taking some autonomous actions, and that was the anti-lock brakes. Um, but now, as you uh, as you start to see new cars being rolled off, they contain you know location tracking. Again, not that new. You had that with things like LoJack and other types of uh, systems for uh, watching cars that might have been stolen. But now you have more location tracking, monitoring of the driving style. Um, in very few cases, uh, you can differentiate between people in the car. But the idea is that if you buy a car. Do you have the opportunity to shut off either any of the sensors that uh, exist now that aren't critical to the car functioning or uh, the new sensors that are going to be ultimately introduced into the car over time? So the the question, and this is related to the first answer, is um, how much information is being collected? And so in this case, I wonder about the location data. 
Um, and then whom is it being shared with? Um, because when you get that car and if it's a new car and you're signing a 15 page contract, um, to purchase it, do you have the right to say, no, you can shut this off, no, shut this off, no, you can't have that information, or I don't want the manufacturer to know this, and I don't want the dealer to know that. That type of granularity doesn't really exist in most places with collection of personal data. But because these devices now um, are, they're not computers, they have computers in them, but their primary function is something else. In the case of the car, primary function is for driving. And so there's uh, uh, an argument to be made that you should have more granular control over the non-essential data collection going on in the car and be able to choose whether or not that data is shared and to what degree. In the United States, there's a bias towards opt-out, um, which means that you have to affirmatively say, um, I don't want you to collect this. Um, and in Europe, there's a bias towards opt-in, which says that, no, I give you direct permission to collect. And so in these two different places, you're likely to see a somewhat different treatment. Um, but a lot of these technologies are born in the United States. Um, and so uh, it's very possible that it's going to inherit that American style of, uh, of data collection and permissioning. So, Galad, all of these devices, maybe we stick with cars for a little bit, are gathering this information and they're sending it back potentially to both the manufacturer and the person who sold it to you. It seems that on some level, transparency and access to this data could offer not only a raising of awareness of these issues, but also potentially useful things to the people that own the equipment. So there's a massive amount of data that's being collected. It's being packed up and sent off to the person that made it. Does the owner of the car have a way of getting this data or the owner of a smart thermostat? And if so, how do they get it? Uh, I'm really thinking what kind of countermeasures can people have to at least see the data that's being collected and sent, if not use it for their own purposes? I mean, and this is a, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think there's a few ideas there. Um, the, the, the main one, you know, the idea of user access to the data that they generate is, of course, a desirable quality in most, uh, in most technological areas, uh, most areas of products. Um, however, the you know ability for people to to see either raw data or data that's gone through uh, transformation or analysis is you know very dependent on the relationship between the customer and the the business, and the business you know gets to decide how much they're going to expose. You know, there are some businesses, of course, that are predicated on the idea of the collection of data and the enrichment of it, and then it's uh, you know and 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 essentially just truck in personal data. And so I'm thinking somebody like Google. And Google has, you know, uh, over the years given us more of a view into the nature of the data that they collect um, and uh, whom they're sharing it. So the car is, an, again, an interesting example. So in the car, a 90%, according to government researchers, 90% of all U.S. cars and light trucks have uh, vehicle black boxes, uh, which are also called event data recorders. That information is not accessible to the driver. It is there as um, it's there used for crash forensics, uh, like you know the black boxes in planes. So that data is not currently available to the user, and in partly is because it's not a consumer technology. It's designed for something else, but also because manufacturers aren't required 
to give information to people. Now, as these cars get more intelligent, as these cars collect more information, <clears throat> as these cars um, connect to other services and perform other analytics, it is an open question as to whether or not uh, the uh, data will be, how viewable the data will be, um, because businesses will always make a determination. They'll say, well, you know, how useful is this data to the client? And is there more, does it make more business sense to transform it first, to give it to analysis first, to ha engage with a third party and then have the data go back to them? There's a, there's a huge range of issues. You know, there's a, you know, people, people of course, see an ownership quality in the data that they produce. And that is a good instinct, though, difficult to uh, create in the real world. We can't actually own the data because uh, it doesn't trigger uh, ownership protections, um, so in which case the, it, it, it's more of an issue of access. So the short answer really is it's going to be up to the business as to whether or not they make that information available and in what form. Um, just as a sidebar, you know, it, it took a little while before Facebook allowed you to download uh, everything that they know about you. And now there's, you know, a small 10 point font link buried somewhere on the Facebook page that, uh, to download it. And that fell under the, the, the heading of data portability, which was a big idea. Um, more in the early 2000s. Um, and that idea is still out there. Uh, but so there's always a question of what is causing the business to give you that access? Sometimes it's in the sense of product different, you know, like to, to, to say, look, we're, we're, uh, uh, we want to have a good relationship with you. Sometimes it's because they think that uh, it'll make the experience more sticky, but sometimes they, they may not want to, you know, to do it because they just don't want to spend the extra money and time and resources to give that access. But just also to jump back briefly to your points about transparency, there's a, there's a difference between transparency and utility. You know, transparency as a data protection and privacy strategy is about arming you with information so that you can then go make a choice or several choices. Um, and that idea comes from uh, a belief that without information about uh, without without information about how you're being monitored, you can't be a fully autonomous human being. You can't make uh, choices. So transparency is a strategy to ha to give people more uh, of a of a view into certain activities, if not the data itself. Um, and so it's serving this this goal of autonomy, but it doesn't necessarily make things more useful. It transparency when you're just talking about data practices rather than the data itself may or may not be useful. The only thing that, you know, like you might see something in, in a list of, of data use practices and say, oh, this, this doesn't feel right. I don't want to use the service. Um, but otherwise, it's kind of questionable what the transparency actually achieves. Now, that said, it's required in that in the absence of transparency, it, it feels like surveillance, um, you know, and uh, so it, it's a necessary but insufficient quality. Let's talk about potential laws or regulations. I know that some of your research was used in England by a House of Commons committee discussing privacy issues. Tell us about that and what you're seeing and hearing as far as what governments are considering doing to address privacy. Sure. That, that research uh, that you mentioned was when the UK government put out a call and said, we would like to um, vacuum up uh, a lot of social media data and analyze it for government purposes. In this case, not law enforcement. In this case, they were thinking of um, beneficial uh, 
uh, outcomes of, you know, trying to look at social media data to come up with, uh, you know, information from it that would theoretically be beneficial to the society. And that's, you know, it, it should be said that, there, you know, there's, there is a porous wall between the, that idea and law enforcement. But in general, you know, in gross, it's, it's uh, helpful to see law enforcement activities and non-law enforcement activities as separate. Uh, but again, there's a lot of passage between those two. But ultimately, they, they were sort of wondering about how they would go about it and whether or not the, the idea of public social media, so like posts that are set to public, for example, and Twitter, which is you know def public by default, whether there was any ethical problems with just you know, inhaling all of that data and doing some analysis on it? And the answer is yes, there are ethical problems with that, because even though information is set to public, there is a concept of uh, respecting the context in which the data was uh, uploaded, was, you know, the information that people volunteered. So if I tweet, I'm not necessarily tweeting in a context that I expect that the government is going to mine that information about me, either in aggregate or with the names attached. And so this idea of respect for context is one element to, to think about when analyzing uh, such a proposal. You know, when it comes to privacy and data protection, especially with a large, powerful actor like the government, one of the you know, most important concerns is the idea of procedural safeguard. In other words, governments have ideas all the time. Sometimes, you know, oftentimes they're good ideas, but the apparatus of implementing these ideas is very large, bureaucratic, and diffuse. Um, and so there, there's a question as to what is it that constrains uh, the activities, makes sure that things are being done securely, make sure that things are being done in line with existing privacy regulation, make sure that people are being sensitive to things that aren't necessarily covered by the regulation, but are still, you know, potentially worrisome. And so the issue uh, is to, you know, how do you come up with ways of uh, letting, letting these things happen if they're good ideas, but letting them happen under control? What you've just been talking about is where the government is an actor we need to be concerned about. But there are other cases in which a government can help preserve people's privacy against other actors via regulations, right? Well, so the government is the main vehicle by which we govern ourselves. Um, so the government is always the mechanism by which we enact law and policy. Um, anything else is private. You know, in, in other words, uh, the modern the modern state. Uh, it is only the government that has the well. So we have we have you know we we have the government creating law and policy that is then uh, visited upon the population and business. Um, you have contracts, which then is a private matter. You know, while well, you can enter into contract with the government, but but the point is that you know for controlling, let's say, company behavior really two direct methods. One is contract and the other is regulation, regulation in the governmental sense. And so we use regulation to control both private actors and public actors. And so, for example, in the United States, the main uh, federal law of privacy is called the Privacy Act of 1974. And it specifically prescribes uh, how you know, personal data and private information is to be treated by federal actors. And in the early 70s, as this, you know, as the uh, law was being uh, debated and constructed in Congress, um, the private actors, the private sector 
got out of it. They they were not included in this in this law. Now, so in Europe, they they have uh, a, a law. Um, a, a, currently, it's the European uh, uh, Data Protection Directive, which then gets translated into the national laws of each of the European states. Um, now, in 2018, a new law comes into force called the General Data Protection Regulation, which will instead be a law that goes across the top of all of these uh, countries. And instead of translating the law into their national law, they will instead take this pan-European law uh, and apply that. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of detail to, to how that will ma- uh, manifest. Some of it's known, some of it's not. But in general, you've got this one big law. But the point is that that one big law contemplates personal data um, as as a single thing, and we call this an omnibus treatment of personal data. In the United States, the way that personal data is governed for the private sector is sectorally. So financial information, educational information, medical information. Those, governs, those, those types of information are governed separately. But Privacy Act of 1974 which the private companies got out of being uh, covered by, is an omnibus law similar to Europe, so that there is one set of ideas about the treatment of personal data that is applied across all federal agencies. Um, And so you do see, in different ways, some convergence um, between the U.S. and Europe with regard to privacy and data protection, but there are also very, very significant uh, differences between them. Over time, there's a similar ethos uh, that binds the two. Um, in fact, in a lot of the modern, th- a lot of the, the thinking of uh, how privacy is enacted in regulation is actually born in the 70s um, and then, you know, gets transformed and, and rewritten over time. Um, and, but ultimately, the general data protection regulation coming into Europe is not a radical change, nor do we see very radical changes coming in the United States. Gilad, is there any kind of scorecard or review ranking of different companies, vendors, products, uh, and the amount of data they gather and what's done with it as as a consumer or somebody making IT purchase decisions or, or even somebody building some sort of IoT solution. What can people do to inform themselves uh, about what's going to happen? You know, let's say I go and buy a hundred smart thermostats for an office building. What can I find out about the security and privacy implications of decisions that I make? That's an excellent question, and the answer is uh, that there's uh, limited ways uh, of do or limited examples of that. There is an organization called the Online Trust Association. Um, they do a uh, a sort of like you know top you know a, a, a ranking of a hundred companies or thereabouts um, and the and in terms of the treatment of privacy now they they are a nonprofit but they're not a rigorous academic research organization so you know one must take their rankings with you know a a rather large grain of salt in part because they don't name and shame and that is because there are business relationships uh for them to maintain uh so that that is one example out there of you know of something that i think does at least have some use though must be not treated as the gospel uh there's 
small examinations of different companies, you know, in academia. But the problem is ultimately that privacy is quite subjective. Security, so security is a is a more reducible set of goals than privacy. Classically, security can be discussed in terms of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And that means confidentiality is only the right people get to see the data. Integrity means that the data is unmolested, uh, and you can expect what you put in is what you get out. And availability means that the system works when it's been you know being called for. And so that's, you know, from a, from a security perspective, certainly, you know, different ways to test that are commissioned attacks. But at the same time, no company wants to publicize its security posture because, A, it, you know, somebody could find a way in, in, in most cases. And B, if, you know, if, uh, if there was any weaknesses in the security there, nobody's going to Nobody's going to talk about that. Um, so instead, it's you're, you know you're re- more reliant on a business's legitimacy, longevity, liability, your contractual relationships, service level agreements, things like that. But privacy, the thing is, there's a floor, uh, which is the, the whatever the minimum privacy laws are for a given country and state. No business is going to say they don't do those because they they're not allowed. They must meet the, min- the legal minimums. But above the legal minimums, you enter an area that's much more subjective because companies certainly are free to do uh, to do more to treat data respectfully and have a more pro- po- privacy positive um, outlook and, and implementation. But then you get into a problem of measurement. So certainly businesses can promise things. And so we see those promises in the forms of privacy policies. Promises like that trigger the FTC in the sense, it, like if you make a public promise and you break it, then that's grounds for the FCC. FT, I'm sorry, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to go after you for having broken a promise. It's called deceptive practice. But once you go above the legal minimum, it's hard to to measure. It's hard, and and so you don't see a lot of uh, collections. And so you have to wonder if if. If a business is ranked based on its volunteered responses to a survey, how rigorous is that? How much are you actually learning? So unfortunately, in the case of, let's say, a large IT expenditure, it is up to the person who's signing those checks to really push on the companies and find out what is it, how are they being, how are they measuring themselves with regard to privacy? What are they stating publicly? Has there been any third-party evaluation of anything? You know, for example, if you think about, let's say it's uh, medical research, and so there are ways to examine the, uh, for example, re-identification risk of certain kinds of medical database uh, research, and uh, so it's possible that if you're engaging with a company that does that work, they may have done that already. And it's, you know, you, and you can ask them, but that's super specialized. And so if you're, you know, if you're wondering about, you know, let's say a company comes up with a, a smarter Roomba, right? Let's say that somebody comes up with a smarter, uh, intelligent vacuum cleaner and you want to know, and it's got, let's say it has cameras on it and, and, and microphones because it just helps it, you know, sweep better. Um, when you start to ask it about, when you ask the company about privacy, you know, there's going to, it's, it's going to be hard to measure how good they are, especially if they're a newer company. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's one of the difficulties of privacy generally is measurement. 
Gilad, one of the most striking things I think you say in your report, Privacy and the Internet of Things, which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode, is that privacy is not just a personal individual issue, but that basically privacy is essential in order for there to even be such a thing as a democratic society. Are some of us in danger of forgetting that or ignoring that? Well, you know, I mean, that idea waxes and wanes over time. You know, just a lot of the American... My, my personal belief is that a good deal of the cultural conception of privacy in America is inherited from anti-wiretapping laws. Um, so the concept of the reasonable expectation of privacy and then the, uh, you know, the, the, the increasing of uh, wiretapping laws to prevent, again, the government from doing things that ultimately were seen to be unfair or illiberal. Um, and if you go backwards in time further, you go to, you know, the, the early days of telephony, of course, included the early days of wiretapping. And we have in the United States a long, long history of mail surveillance, uh, you know, postal mail. So there's a, an idea in, in sociology that um, states penetrate their populations through different ways and that, that, that the state needs for people to be legible, that is countable, detectable, knowable. Um, because uh, different qualities of the state rely upon that. Who's in? Who's out? Who gets to cross the border? Who gets benefits? Who gets arrested? Who gets a driver's license and who gets their driver's license taken away? Uh, who gets to get housing and who doesn't? So privacy is a, a quality, if you believe in a free society, that we need because as human beings, we must have private spaces into which to retreat, to develop ourselves, to develop our personality, and to talk about unpopular things, to talk about viewpoints that dissent from the majority, to experiment with ourselves and our thoughts and our language, to make mistakes. Privacy protects those kinds of things. Think about all the things that could not have happened if children were not able to experiment uh, with their thoughts and actions in private, if parents couldn't keep things from uh, their children or from other family members. To, uh, you know, imagine if people who, you know, were contemplating political ideas that went against the grain of the dominant ideology weren't able to, in private, discuss those things, um, or if you weren't able to withhold information from your neighbor, or from your boss. A society that doesn't have privacy is turned inside out, and it lowers trust, ultimate, and it homogenizes. And there's this idea in the privacy field of something called the chilling effect, which is that in the absence of privacy, speech and thought are chilled because you won't be willing to uh, potentially go against the grain if you feel that doing so might ultimately harm you. You know, think about you know we're we're in a we're you know in, in terms of the, uh, the the current LGBTQ climate in America. You know, it has taken us a very 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 long time for issues about being gay to be mainstream versus being hushed and quiet and the, you know the classic term in the closet and. The reason that the, such information and discussions would be kept in the closet is because of reprisal. 
And so we're, you know, clearly, we, you know, this is not a, a, a finished issue by any means. But over time, as gay issues in America have become more mainstream, it means that they can be discussed less in hushed tones and discussions and brought out more. However, until it got to this point, privacy was essential for those people to uh, be able to live their lives, discuss these issues, but then still be able to keep their jobs or avoid violence or avoid uh, other forms of stigmatization. So as we get close to wrapping up here, Gilad, if we look at both the U.S. and Europe, is there good news, you know, uh, positive trends that you're seeing where there's movement in the direction of more respect for privacy? Or is there a downward trend? You know, we're not seeing privacy laws and data protection laws dismantled, which is good. And in fact, we are seeing, I really like this term, norm entrepreneurship, uh, the idea of sort of, you know, uh, broadening norms uh, and have specific actors broadening norms. I've read some excellent research um, about the idea of the different states attorneys general um, being norm entrepreneurs in the world of privacy and thereby affecting U.S. federal law. You know, in Europe, the general data protection regulation is kind of a doubling down of earlier ideas. And so it's, again, like I said before, it's not a radical break, but it is, a, you know, a tightening up of data protection fairness ideas. And in terms of other countries around the world that have not had a, a privacy or data protection framework, they are modeling theirs on Europe. And Europe has a you know a strong ethos informing it, and that and that's and I don't say that comparatively. I mean, in America, you do as well, and just in in different places. Europe and America have the same problem in that they're both huge, huge populations, and you know even though it's not directly analogous to see U.S. states and European member states as the same thing, you know. Coarsely, there are certainly some similarities, and you then also see the, the great difficulty in having homogenous law cover such a wide, wide group of differing uh, nations and ideas and cultures. Um, and so, but still in America, um, you do see you know, forward motion in the states with regard to privacy law. At the federal level, things move very, very slowly, um, but still we have. Uh, some, you know, newer institutions like the the Consumer Finance, uh, the Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau, um, and uh, you have recently uh, the FCC took a stab at privacy in an area that they normally, you know, haven't really uh, flexed their muscle in, but by calling internet uh, and broadband services uh, under clearly under their own jurisdiction, they've been able to put some uh, more pressure in terms of privacy architectures there. So I don't think things are bleak. I think that uh, it's a very slow, very, very slow forward progress. I mean, we're in an era that we are creating so much data about ourselves and about everything else that a sensor could collect. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're creating ridiculous amounts of data about humans, and we're also creating lots of data about oil rigs and trucks, and we're just making lots of data. Recently... Um, I heard an, a new word, um, and so there's a scale of the of data sizes. So of course everybody knows what a kilobyte is, a megabyte, 
a gigabyte, terabyte, and there are layers above that. I think it's um, um, uh, a yottabyte, uh, oh, then you have a petabyte, a yottabyte, a zettabyte, um, and a new one that wasn't big enough, you know, and you're adding a zero on in each in each of these cases. And so a new word has been floated, and that is a bronto byte. But so the, the fact is, you know, now that we're reaching this point where we're looking at these, you know, absurdly huge numbers, that's a real big difference between the modern age and anything that came before. And so regulatorily and socially, this amount of data is new, novel, you know, and, and strange uh, and not obvious in terms of the way that we should govern these things. Socially, we learn to govern ourselves over tens of thousands of years. And then you know, in the 1500s, we get uh, the printing press, which in terms of human history, not that recent. But of course, you know, we had writing before that. But as you as we move forward in time and our societies become more informationally dense, it has this knock on effect um, and dealing with governing that information and just socially, culturally. How do I feel about this? How do we how do we feel about it from a, you know, uh, perspective of personal exposure and vulnerability. And then other issues like, can this stockpiling of data harm certain groups more than others? You know, there's, again, excellent research starting to emerge about how the poor and, uh, and, disenfran and traditionally disenfranchised communities are harmed more by big data and by errors in uh, large databases. You have a uh, a few great scholars out there like Karen Levy um, and Solon Barakas, who are exploring these types of differences uh, in the effect of these huge stockpiles of information. And so, you know, it, it, you know it, one place where I think that we are seeing uh, excellent forward motion is in the privacy academic community and also in the legal community. You know, these are, the, these are growing groups of people who, you know, for whom, uh, you know, there, there is an ethical component to this. Uh, and they are, you know, they're watching and they are writing. And that's a place where I take heart. A lot to think about. So, uh, Gilad, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your activities, where should they go? So uh, please come to the Internet of Things Privacy Forum website, which is www.iotprivacy.com. Forum.org. That's the website. They can also just get in touch with me, Gilad. It's G-I-L-A-D at IOTPrivacyForum.org. I tweet uh, at IOT Privacy Forum as well as at Gilad Rosner. That's G-I-L-A-D-R-O-S-N-E-R. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I do this for a living because I really, really enjoy these subjects. So I'm delighted to talk to people about it, uh, you know, at any point. Gilad, thank you for joining us. It's really my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn so you'll never miss an episode. And you can visit us at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. For the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast, I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Blyall.